I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Welcome to my happy place, my podcast where I attempt to self-medicate myself against overthinking about impending mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity. These are the 100 things I'll miss when I'm dead. I guess I'm making this podcast because I feel I have to. It's a personal journey. One of the results of this long, crazy year where we've been forced to take stock of many different aspects of our lives. It's taking me down memory lane as I take memories out of old boxes on dusty shelves in my mind and piece them together for the content. It's also been great so far to engage in conversations with others about the things they'll miss when they're dead. Oh my God, it's all so (laughs) life-affirming. But yeah, it's great. At my local wine bar last week, I was sitting with some friends and acquaintances. I generally always have a book with me, and sure enough, there was one on the table. One of the others picked it up and had a look at it as I was talking to someone else. Suddenly, she just tossed the book back at me. I caught it. She just nodded and said, I just wanted to see if you can actually catch. If you've heard episode one, you'll know what that was all about. Now I'm constantly on edge that people will be throwing things at me at every waking moment. But then again, that would be fun. Right up until I'm dead, of course. Let's do this. Episode 3. Number 16. Silage. I recall with great clarity the distinct aha moment I had when I discovered that some human somewhere had expropriated a word for a sensory pleasure that I have cultivated for years. Silage is from the French, for the wake behind a boat but it later came to apply to how the scent of a perfume lingers behind the wearer as they move. I discovered my fascination with it while riding bikes in Copenhagen. As a rule, I seem to cycle faster than most others on the cycle tracks in my city, passing hundreds of other cycling citizens on the left on my A to B journeys. I remember that morning, and I've determined that this silage affair is more poignant in the mornings, somewhere around 2008 where I was coming up behind another cyclist. I was easily 20 meters out and preparing to glide to the left to overtake when her silage enveloped me. Olfactory fingers caressed my nose, but also my entire face, it seemed. The scent was sweet apple, and I was sure that it was her shampoo as opposed to a perfume. It took control of my movements, causing me to gently slow my momentum. It was springtime, I recall. The days were getting longer. Senses were sharpened after the long, dull, and dark winter. I gave in to the seduction of the silage, overruling my inherent desire to maintain my natural pace. I eased up on the pedals and settled into a slot some five meters behind this fellow citizen, inhaling the apple projection, as I learned it is called in the perfume industry, as I squinted into the sunrise until one of us had to break the connection and veer off the path to go to work. It's not an everyday occurrence on the cycle tracks, nor can you plan it. It comes at you suddenly and unexpectedly, and it is glorious when it does. Walking is another matter. On a sidewalk or pedestrian street, someone can catch my eye. As they pass, I can effortlessly sidestep into their silage and add a sensory impression of the stranger. Most often, it's an added value to the anthropological happenstance. On occasion, it's, huh, what an odd scent didn't match the visuals at all. It doesn't necessarily have to involve the gender that you primarily find attractive. I have, on occasion, sailed along in the silage of men. When telling people about this through the years, cultural patterns emerge. 
Europeans, for example, pause and smile and regard it as beautiful. Conversations begin as we explore the topic. It's only been Americans who have said stuff like, Oh my God, that is so creepy. Such is the vast cavern that runs the length of the North Atlantic. The use of perfume dates back to our earliest human civilizations. It's said that it predates makeup, probably because our sense of smell is so powerful. Accentuating our scent, whether for ourselves or for the others around us, is a natural part of being human. I remember when I was an awkward teenager, and I was shopping around for scents to adorn myself with. I had a treasured collection of the tiny and free test vials from the department store. I noticed that when I wore a certain brand, many girls would comment, saying, Hmm, you smell nice. When you're a teenage boy and many girls comment positively on anything you do, you make a note of it, you register it, you carve it in stone in your head. And yeah, I still use the same brand to this day. All thanks to random teenage girls on a distant continent several decades ago. Now all of this is generally about the scents and aromas we use on ourselves. But the same aesthetic effect is achieved when you're walking behind someone who's carrying fresh bread from the bakery or cycling home behind someone late at night who's carrying a piping hot pizza in a box. Silage is the olfactory catwalk that we all strut down. Number 17. Keys. The idea for this list appeared late one evening at the back gate to the courtyard of my apartment building here in Copenhagen. I enjoy improving the effectiveness of routine actions in my daily life. Already as I roll towards the gate on my bike, my hand is reaching into my left-hand pocket, fingers deftly enclosing around the jangling bundle of metal and drawing them out. I have exactly seven keys on one single key ring, which itself is attached to a smoothly worn metal carabiner clip. My middle finger invariably slides into the carabiner and pulls out the bundle. Then a quick little flip so the keys perform a backward somersault into the palm of my hand. My feet negotiate the slowing of the bicycle by gently pressing on the coaster brake, and my right hand steers, allowing the fingers of my left to feel out those keys, finding the one that will grant me access with the deftness of a pickpocket. The one-handed dismount is the last test of my macro motor skills. My left hand pauses momentarily to allow my brain to siphon off a second or so of concentration before resuming the search for the key in question. Our genitals aside, fingertips feature the highest concentration of touch receptors and thermoreceptors on the human body, so they are in their element here. The key I need is one of the two larger keys in the bundle, but it's the only one with a rubber cover. I chose green for those times when my eyes assist me in the quest, but that's like calling for backup, and I try to avoid it each and every time. I forego any fob, as this would add unnecessary hurdles for my fingers. Once I've found the key, my fingers start at the head, sliding past the shoulder to the blade. Here my index finger and thumb team up for the final push, seeking out that serrated edge. In anticipation and preparation for this, I have, of course, positioned all seven keys so that the ridge edge of the blades are aligned on the key ring. No upside-down keys allowed. Once I ensure the key is positioned correctly, my index finger slides forward, extending past the tip of the key by 5 millimeters. Yeah, I actually measured. My thumb pressing the tip of the key into the pulp of my index finger, and below it, the solid foundation of the distal phalange. 
It holds it firmly in place as the tip of my pointer finger now assumes a new role, scouting ahead, seeking out the keyhole. When it's located, the index finger buckles at the proximal interphalangeal joint between the proximal and intermediate phalanges, sliding back along the blade and allowing the key tip to enter the hole. The rest of me waits patiently as this micro-event unfolds. My right hand holds the handlebars of my bike. My feet stand firmly on the ground, with the left assuming a staggered position ahead of the right. If I get the angle right, the keyblade slides in effortlessly. A quick and rough turn to the left, and the gate opens with a pull on the key, now doubling as a doorknob. The gate hinges creak as though in protest had once again been breached. Statistically, the chance of success diminishes considerably when I'm drunk. It's dark, or a combination of the two. I remember reading as a child how gunfighters in the Wild West would continuously bite their fingertips in order to keep them sensitive. Now I understand why. I came late to Keys. I was never handed one as a child since the doors to our home were never locked. My bike and school lockers were combination locks. Unlocking them involved a certain level of dexterity in concert with the brain that faithfully stored the numbers and relayed them to the fingertips. But it remained a minor physical and cognitive affair. My first key, I think, was a car key at 16. It was first when I moved away from home at 18, bouncing around apartments in a couple of different cities, that keys became a standard feature in my pockets. I like their contradictory roles. They are at once completely unremarkable and absolutely essential to daily life. I am enthralled by their ability to both grant access and deny it. Unassuming bits of metal or plastic that nonetheless possess secret, coded information that is only recognized and approved by the right lock. They also possess the same mystery when you find a key at home and have no recollection of what it's for. It's the security version of single socks in the washing machine. Keys are that faithful companion that you can't live without and that only reveal their worth to you when you misplace them or lose them. I am going to miss entering and exiting places with that tiny poetic intermezzo of locking or unlocking. Number 18. Making plans. That might never happen. Leaning up against the wall of my living room is a cool longboard. Its primary function is adding flavor to the interior design of my home, and it performs it well. When a friend gave it to me years ago, I thought, yeah, I could take it out when my kids go inline skating at the beach and improve my board skills. I did a bit of skateboarding as a youth. I could easily get back in the game. Yeah, so that never happened. A day doesn't pass when I look at the longboard and think, I really should make an effort and master it. While working for a period in Rio de Janeiro, I saw longboards everywhere. They're a primary transport form on the bike lanes along the Copacabana and Ipanema beaches for men and women alike. And how cool is that? If seeing a woman in a bikini holding a surfboard and longboarding to the beach to catch some waves doesn't inspire me to master a longboard, I don't know what will. But I haven't, and I probably won't. There are other pursuits that consistently overrule it, and I've realized... You know what? That's okay. I like that the longboard is there, merely looking pretty and reminding me daily that I won't get on it. I need that grounded realization. You can't do it all. You have to keep dreaming and wishing for things. 
I am grateful that I never lived in a performance-based culture where you're measured at every step, where everything you don't do is regarded as a failure. It's okay to prioritize differently and to leave some things alone. I've always wanted to be able to draw well, and while I continue to doodle, I know that I probably never will master it. I never learned to play a musical instrument, and that nags at me as well. On the other hand, I've recently reactivated my childhood desire to learn Icelandic in order to read the sagas and the works of Snorri Sturluson from the 12th century. I'm well into it, 100 days and counting. Plugging away for five minutes a day on an app is rewarding, even as I glance over at the lonely longboard. Number 19. Constructing a Fine Sentence I'm going to miss writing sentences that convey exactly what I want them to convey. Constructing a fine sentence is building a house in which a thought or two can live happily ever after. The tools and materials need to be used just right. The grammar, the meaning, the context, the rhythm and flow of it. They're all the foundation, walls, and roof. The carefully crafted dramaturgy is the interior design. Then there is the difference between written and spoken sentences, the twins that you wish you could have a threesome with, but you secretly suspect you never can. I can write a sentence and then say it out loud, and vice versa, but I can never figure out which is the dominant force. Writing a sentence is carpentry, with its thought and structure. A spoken sentence, on the other hand, is beat poetry that emerges mysteriously on the fly with the added effect of tonality and a spontaneity that the written sentence lacks. Both are brilliant. You can kiss one twin and fantasize about the other, but again, no threesome. Either way, when you nail it, it feels so good. When I reread my old journals that I started as a 17-year-old, I'll occasionally read a sentence and be amazed by it. Very occasionally, but still. The ultimate win is reading your own work years later and wondering who the hell wrote that. Number 20 knowing when a painting is done. It's different with art. A painting starts with an idea, like most other creative pursuits, and then you begin to visualize it. That weird little thing in your head must now be transmogrified into something other humans can see and feel, perchance understand. For me, painting is akin to getting a super-like on Tinder and then hemming and hawing about how to respond, or whether or not I should even bother. I'll sketch on paper with crude lines to establish geometry and form. I'll prepare a canvas, which, for my technique, is a sheet of wood or particle board on a wooden frame that I make myself. I'll scale up the sketch on the board, again with rough lines that have little detail. There's a great deal of staring at the blank canvas, and I am always acutely aware of how cliched that feels. Then the blizzard of applying the materials, be it plaster, pencil, paint, or tape, always punctuated by pauses for pondering. I am well aware when a painting is approaching the final phase. I know I'm getting close. What I'm going to miss when I'm dead is that tiny moment of clarity when some mysterious department in my brain decides that I'm done. The painting is complete. There's no pattern to it. It can come after a single stroke or a massive and unexpected intervention that completely transforms the work. But there it is. I think I shrug a little and purse my lips when it hits me. I have spent too many hours contemplating how and why it happens in the vain hope of trying to make it systematic. I have learned to accept that it is what it is and that it will forever remain a mystery. 
Number 21. Catching Something Falling The most recent example of this was just the other evening, as I chopped potatoes into round slices. I tried to secure the slices as I cut, since the starchy secretion caused them to stick to the knife blade. One of the slices came up with the knife, and as I adjusted the position for the next cut and moved the blade downward, the errant slice rolled back towards me to the edge of the counter. Even though I was concentrating on cutting, I registered that roll. It reached the edge and started the downward fall to the floor. In a flash, I laid the knife down on the cutting board and swept my right arm around in an arc, bending my knees in the process, positioning my hand under the falling piece of potato, which landed in the palm of my hand 15 centimeters above the floor. My left hand was still holding the uncut half of the potato up on the counter. Now, I knew I was home alone at that moment, but you know what? I still looked around to see if anyone saw this epic athletic recovery and was so frustrated that there were no witnesses. While I failed in the task of cutting the potato, I more than made up for it in a brilliant flash of agile light. I'll never tire of these tiny moments of skill, and sometimes they're elevated to the next level, grabbing a falling knife precisely by the handle, extending a foot beneath a falling object, and kicking it upwards back into the range of the hand. Oh, I just remembered a classic. My son was barely two, and had climbed up on the armrest of a chair in the living room, straddling it. I glanced in from the kitchen and saw that he was slowly sliding off the side. I ran in, and in a rapid assessment of the physics involved, I knew that there wouldn't be time to reach him. So I found myself throwing my body into a slide along the hardwood floors. My right leg lifted up during the slide, and as he fell, his torso first landed on my leg, which then acted as a cushion which brought him more gently to the floor, all while my body was still sliding. This time, my wife at the time saw the whole episode unfold. A witness, yes. My kid, he just laughed and said, Again, Daddy, again. Oh man, I could go on. These simplest of pleasures, ones that last just under a second and yet make me feel so alive. Number 22, Losing. I like to win. I am competitive in sports and thrive on the constant battle for victory. Winning feels fantastic, whether it's in sports or anything else. But that winning feeling is a fleeting affair. The chemicals released by it soon fade and you're left with a satisfying memory. Losing, on the other hand, is a longer process. While I pride myself on being competitive, I'm not prone to anger-induced, racket-smashing rage when I lose. I become introspective. Like yesterday, for example. I played paddle tennis with some friends. Doubles. Lars and I lost 6-4, 7-5, and were down 3-2 when the hour expired. Which was frustrating because our opponents aren't better than us. We made too many unforced errors. Already mid-match, I could see the negative patterns emerging. And I started the long analytical process of identifying my mistakes and trying to rectify them. Then... Upon realizing I was overthinking, I tried desperately to unthink, but it was too late. The whole way home on my bike, the entire evening, and even well into the next day, I constantly analyze. Envisioning my strokes, remembering the times I kept hitting the tape on the top of the net or sending the ball out of play against the back wall. I have a brutally clear image of every failed shot and my brain tries to fix them. 
I remember an interview with a professional football player where he said that he doesn't remember all of his amazing goals that we remember. He only remembers the shots that didn't go in. Losing is a journey. Something is broken and it needs to be repaired and, in most cases, can be repaired. Frustration can be transformed into an energy, a desire to improve. When you're winning, you merely maintain your technique and repeat, copy-pasting from one event to the next. Ain't broke? Don't fix it. Losing, on the other hand, forces you to take stock, to reinvent, change, and adjust. I like that. Number 23. Satisfying Bodily Functions There are a great many good reasons why your body needs to discard liquids, solids, and air. And that's great. Thanks, evolution. What's even greater is when it feels good. I am going to sorely miss that satisfaction of my two anal sphincters having a chat and telling my stretch receptors to send a message to my brain that it's time to offload some dead weight. Once the process is underway and muscles are working to make it happen, my vagus nerve, not to be confused with Las Vegas, one of the biggest nerves in the body, and the one that keeps your body relaxed and controls breathing and digestion, reports back to the brain that abdominal pressure is decreasing. My brain high-fives itself in the same way that it does when I successfully and satisfactorily complete a task. My heart rate and blood pressure fall. My pudendal nerve, which is the same one that is active in the penis and clitoris, also adds to the sensory messaging to my brain that some good things are happening down there. My stimulated prostate chimes in and says, yep, I can confirm all of this. It's one big sensory love-in. The same team is on the field when I fart. Although it's more of a qualifying match than a championship. For societal reasons, we spend most of our lives desperately trying to minimize the release of air from our rectum. And certainly muffling the noise. Those occasions where I can just let one rip with all the musicality and deep vibrato, the longer the better, are fantastic. There is less sensory pleasure in just having a pee. But hey, when you really, really have to go, and you've been waiting for it for ages, and then you finally get to, that feeling is amazing. Number 24, 20-somethings. It was never planned, believe me. But for the past decade or so, 90% of my social life has been spent in the company of 20-somethings with a smattering of people in their 30s thrown in for good measure. Had you told me in my mid-20s that 30 years later I'd be hanging out with the same type of crowd, I would have thought you to be quite odd. Let's be clear, I'm certainly not going to miss all 20-somethings. Oh my god, no. So I should probably qualify the title with the right 20-somethings. I doubt I'd even want to hang out with myself as a 20-something. But I've been lucky to meet so many cool ones through my work in urbanism, conferences I speak at, and my local wine bar. They're generally the people I enjoy spending social time with the most. Conversations are almost always positive, full of optimism for the future. They're also a lot of fun. What they might lack in life experience, they make up for with enthusiasm, seeking out inspiration, tips and tricks for how to get the most out of life, a life that is, by and large, out there ahead of them. They are not yet weighed down by all the travails of adult life. They look forward in time at the possibilities and embrace potential and are still willing to listen and learn. They don't make lists like this. 
It's also easy to entice them to stay for another drink or to be enticed by them. By contrast, hanging out with people my own age generally involves boring conversations where proving you know stuff, quite possibly more stuff than the others who are present, outweighs the actual subject matter. The great one-upmanship Olympics. Then there's the mind-numbingly dull, to me anyway, subjects of mortgages, interest rates, investment portfolios, yada, yada, yada. For a guy who isn't concerned at all with material wealth, knowing where the exit is located is imperative. I am generalizing here, of course. I have friends and colleagues in all age groups with whom I enjoy great and passionate conversations about our lives, arts, philosophy, about our work. Then there's my small, close circle of friends, and I value greatly the bonds that we share. In modern society, we tend to inhabit age silos more than ever before, due to social media and the decline of having several generations living under one roof. I like the fact that I've installed fun water slides from my silo over to others and cool climbing walls to get back up. Huh, I should really install zip lines too. That would be awesome. I never planned for my social life to be as it is, but you know what? I'm not complaining. I don't know entirely what effect it has on me, but I feel like it keeps me young. It's like a mental fountain of youth. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. You've been listening to The 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. This episode is brought to you in part by The Wonder of Human Evolution. The music is by Phil Creamer and Mikhail Gull. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>